Hi guys! Before we get started, we're doing Con Air by the way, that's fun. Remember when I launched a podcast called Development Hell quite recently, and then very swiftly changed the name to How Didn't This Get Made? Well that's because I had pitched a podcast series to iHeartRadio, and I had also used the name Development Hell, and as it turns out, that pilot got commissioned as part of their Next Great Podcast initiative. The pilot in question has now been released, so you can go and check it out if you want. It's really cool. It's a documentary series where I explore various film projects that never got made, featuring interviews with people involved with them. The pilot focuses in on Simpsons movies that never got made, and I interview the likes of Bill Oakley, who was showrunner of The Simpsons for seasons 7 and 8, He's probably best known as the writer of the Steamed Hams bit. Mark Kirkland, who is a director who's been with the show pretty much from the start. He was there in the building while they were working on season one. His his first credit on the show is in season two, and he's put out episodes as recently as this year. And David M. Stern, who's written a number of classic episodes, probably most notably Camp Krusty. Anyway, I have a big favour to ask. Even if you can't be bothered going and checking out that pilot, basically there are 10 pilots they've put forward. The one that gets the most votes goes to series, which means that iHeartRadio would be picking up my show and paying me to produce more content, which, even if you're not interested in this sideshow, is only going to be good for diminishing returns. It will increase the exposure, give us the ability to approach and secure more exciting big-name guests, and, you know, on a personal level, I'm actually being made redundant at the end of 2020 as a result of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. If this show were picked up, it would be an opportunity for me to do podcasting as my day job, and that, as well, is going to mean a lot of time would be spent on diminishing returns. So, if you're a fan of this show, please do head to nextgreatpodcast.com. You don't need to sign up for anything or anything like that. Just head there, click on vote now, then select development hell and press vote. And that's your job done. It it would be hugely appreciated. I, I know we've asked you to rate the show on iTunes and like and subscribe and all that sort of stuff, but this would mean so much more than all of those things, really, to me. Not so much, Alan. Thanks, and here is this week's episode, Con Air. More Nicolas Cage. Hello and welcome to Diminishing Returns. Hello, my name is Alan. I'm here as always with Sol. Hello. 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 What have we got today, Sol? Something uh, a little bit more flippant than... Well, we're always <laughs> doing flippant things, but this is a particularly uh, ridiculous film. Yeah. We had a gap in the schedule, mm-hmm. as is the condition of, of 2020. Yes. Basically, we looked at what we'd done. We thought, let's do something that isn't going to step on the heels of what we've been doing elsewhere. We've We've just done a load of horror stuff. Done some comedy stuff. Yeah, we, we've just done a, a classic, and uh, we have another classic in the works, and we had one a bit before that. So you decided it would be good to do a sort of old-school action movie? 
Yeah, I mean, if we're discounting the James Bond crap, then uh, we haven't done that for a while. And, hmm. uh, of course, we... What was the last one we did? What, action nonsense? Uh... Yeah, like out-and-out out action, no zombies in it, explosions and cars and things. <laughs> um... It's been a while, hasn't it? If, yeah. you, if you take all the superheroes out and giant sharks and Christopher <laughs> Nolan and stuff out of there. The sort of thing we're talking about. I'm looking at what I'm looking at our episode list now. Wow. Wow. Good shout. Well that's it, exactly. We so I thought let's let's do some Bad Boys. Well, there's a connection there. Way back in uh, January, Bad Boys. I think that's the last one we've done like this. Yeah, I mean same producers, Jerry Bruckheimer of course. Uh, just yeah. I don't think we actually said we're doing Con Air. Uh, the Nicolas Cage starring yes. film from 1997, and we now we uh, we have just done a Nicolas Cage film. Well, it was a recently. few months ago. We did Vampire's Kiss. That's a very different era, Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I think they're different ends of the Nicolas Cage spectrum. <laughs> well, when we talked about that, you were obviously a big Nicolas Cage fan. I say obviously, who isn't? And you said in that record that Con Air was probably the biggest gap in your Nicolas Cage. Uh, education yes. is the one sort of big film you haven't seen. Let's catch people up a little bit. That Vampire's Kiss episode was something of a Diminiso spin-off. Um, we we covered a number of my film lists on some Diminisodes earlier this year in a, a new sort of sub-series of things that we launched, and we looked at my list of Nicolas Cage performances ranked that I keep. <laughs> Of course. Now, I don't know how many films were on there back then, but I have really gone a bit cage crazy <laughs> as it happens the last few weeks. Uh, I'm up to 61 Nicolas Cage wow. films viewed as of today. Um, I'll tell you why. It's because I, earlier this year, um, I mean, pre lockdown, pre coronavirus, I just watched loads of films and and my main goal was trying to keep up with stuff coming out that's not a thing anymore so during the lockdown i i made it a mission to watch the imdb top 250 films i did that i shifted gears to all the best picture winners which i'm sort of working through now but that's quite a slow involved process because i'm i'm having most of the the films sent out to me via post i, I still do a postal rental thing because it allows oh. me to watch specific films i didn't even know that existed anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had to find the company that stepped in after Love Film shut down. And now um, I've just been going through Netflix, Amazon Prime, and so on. Amazon Prime, I built a, a watch list based on all these things I had on my IMDb watch list, and a lot of those were just Nicolas Cage films, because I went through adding his filmography that I hadn't seen at one point. And as it happens, this is quite a long-winded way of saying this, but as it happens... All the kind of shit, forgettable, doing it for the money, pumping out three a year Nicolas Cage films that he's been making since 2010 or so, mm -hmm. seem to be on Amazon Prime. <laughs> right. So at the minute, with lockdown and my, my work situation and everything, I, I'm sort of managing about three films a day. And they're all shit Nicolas Cage films. <laughs> and generally speaking, I am starting off the day with a, a shit Nicolas Cage film, because I'm still waking up and I don't want to have to engage my brain too much. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I'll tell you what, some of them haven't been that terrible. <laughs> some of them have been awful. Pay the ghost, appalling. <laughs> but I watched this um, this sort of weird heist film with him and Elijah Wood the other day, which was surprisingly passable for, <laughs> for a sort of straight-to-video on-demand thing. I can't actually remember what it's called. I'm, I'm going to... The Trust. 
Okay. But I mean, yeah, basically I've watched a lot of a lot of Nicolas Cage recently and obviously most of it has been terrible. So Con Air has been a nice little reward for <laughs> <laughs> persevering through most of the shit on Amazon Prime. Just to just to sort of put my cards on the table. Obviously you mentioned that you haven't seen Con Air and I was like, "Oh, how can you have not seen it? It's this classic you know, Cage, mm-hmm. 90s action film. I have to say from my own personal history, you know, I became a big Nicolas Cage fan at this period. You know, I was like 12, 13 years old, big stupid action films, Nicolas Cage, this kind of mid to late 90s period. It just hit me mm-hmm. perfectly. And so I've got, and we've talked about this before, like when we did Godzilla, for example, I've got a real like uh, nostalgia thing with like 90s action, still quite practical, but big budget stuff. You do? But you do also hate Face Off. Face Off falls into exactly this category. I remember liking it when I was younger, but the last time I tried to watch it, which was several years ago, I got like 40 minutes in and I had to stop. It was just winding me up too much. I think the problem with it is it's just too ridiculous. John Travolta. And crap. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so, but for me, I'm going to sort of put my cards on the table quite, quite early here. Con Air is a kind of uh, something I really like despite all its flaws uh, and even perhaps because of the kind of the silliness of it, it it just sort of falls into a perfect era and a period for me and it does what it's trying to do well there's no sense of realism to anything that happens and it's all very over the top and silly but that's what it's there for so mm. that's kind of where i stand if you want to kind of hold your uh, hold your um, thoughts until we sort of go into a bit more detail, because I think I can. This is a this is a film that you could easily uh, punch holes in. Let's just say that, <laughs> and I'm happy to do that with. Obviously, you. yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I'm a big Nicolas Cage fan. That's largely for the the spectacle of yeah, just whatever madness he's trying to put in a bottle. This perhaps isn't a film that gives you much on that front. So yeah, do you want to talk about Nicolas? Cage's performance. Yeah, I, let's away. get Cage out of the way it, because it is quite a subdued performance, isn't it? Well, I think basically what I'm going to say is the Nicolas Cage factor is largely irrelevant in this one, and my my thoughts on this film are going to be down to it as a film rather than <laughs> the Cage factor. As okay. much as I am a noted Nicolas Cage fan, there's nothing wrong with what Cage is doing here. He's just kind of there. I'd say the most notable thing about his performance in this film is that at one point he sounded just like Hank Hill. <laughs> um, the, the accent he was—he's he, doing a kind of weird Southern. Well, he's supposed accent, to be from Alabama, so. I guess it's that. Yeah. But you know. is it when they nearly crash into a giant tank of propane and propane accessories? <laughs> uh no, it was it was the line, uh Where'd you put my daughter's picture, you shit eating peckerhead? <laughs> <laughs> that is a moment where the character is performing. Uh, so perhaps he's doing a slightly different voice to the rest of the time. Mm. Because the character is pretending to be saying something that he's he's actually hiding. It was very. It was a very classic Cage accent. I would say it was kind of you know malleable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually found him really. Um, I guess he has this the two levels, doesn't he? Like bizarrely over the top with everything, and this very subdued yeah. thing, which I and then subdued. Yeah, in the very yeah. beginning, we see, we hear him like narrating. He's like reading letters out that he's writing to his daughter, and it's this very. Well, it's the southern draw. The beginning kind of... of this film is very weirdly paced. I have to say, it felt so fast, like just a montage. It was yeah, it's difficult story, to kind of 
settle into it, I thought. Well, there's a very quick sort of montage just setting up that he's a ranger. Uh, it was some sort of military thing. And mm. uh, he that's him. And he comes back to town, to his little small town where his gal is a waitress and she's waiting for him. Um, and Imogen establishes she's pregnant. Although that was my first note, right? They they kind of he comes back for he's been off doing war or whatever and he comes back and they're reunited and it's kind of this nice moment but then she says she's pregnant and she's obviously like she's quite skinny she's not showing at all so she's maybe what two months pregnant at most <laughs> so obviously they haven't, yeah. they haven't been parted for that long you know you obviously seen her quite recently uh but yeah so the implication is he's finally back he's gonna come home and look after his gal and his baby uh gets into a bar fight just with some drunken dickheads uh, but because he's dead good at fighting and that, he accidentally kills one of them. Pretty clean-cut case of self-defense. There's a bit where we see the guy has a knife, but then someone takes it away, so I guess that wasn't in evidence. Like you say, this is all kind of done in a quick cut scenes. Obviously, he had a shit lawyer, um, because he gets done for uh, ma- involuntary manslaughter, I guess. And he gets sent to prison for five to seven years. So that's your setup, and that is, yeah, like you say, it's it's very sort of quick. We quickly get this established establishment. He's a good guy, but he's in prison. That's all we need mm. to know, really. It, it was that was it. It felt very functional, and on one hand, it meant that the film works very effectively up front. You're just into the action. You don't have a chance to get bored or annoyed with anything. Uh, on the other hand, I think it means that whatever you're watching is never going to transcend a kind of base level of of enjoyment because you're just not as invested in the whole thing as you might be. And I I mean, they could have done more later on to to counter that, but they don't. So yeah, I don't know. It felt very workmanlike. Yeah, and I think that's the whole film falls into that category, really. It's like, we just need to paint these very basic emotional levels so they they work and we can pin some action scenes onto it. Mm. It's not it's not breaking uh, any new ground here, but it, it's just doing the archetypal stuff well. I think it does it well. Uh, and with enough charm and, and panache. I think one of the major uh, assets of this film uh, is that they've put together a great group of actors. And they oh, really man. bring the script to life. They really bring a lot of character to uh, characters that could be quite yeah, just plain yeah. old boring stuff. I had no idea that this film's cast was uh, as extravagant as it is. It, I, I don't know if it's that classic thing of just a great casting director who's got an eye for talent, you know, spotting people on the way up, or if all these people were established when this was made. I, I don't really know. Um, I mean, it's 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 an interesting cast in, in that it's... I mean, Nicolas Cage is a big star. I guess uh, yeah. John Malkovich is the kind of primary bad guy is cage is arguably at peak uh star power oh yeah 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 this was his peak yeah you've got and then john cusack as the guy on the ground john cusack yeah 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 they were all stars but then the likes of colin meany steve buscemi uh steve buscemi ving rames ving rames yeah dave chappelle those guys are all john malkovich working colin meany yeah yeah so those guys they're not big stars. Um, they're the sort of people that you... Yeah, I think that's down to a good uh, casting director or maybe the director's choice or something. 
going, yeah, you know, who's yeah. a good actor and we'll stick him in this role? Like Colin Meaney, you can give him a part and, and like he'll he'll do something with it, you know? I'm a big fan of Colin Meaney. Mm. And at this point when I watched this, you yes, know, I knew him from yeah. Star Trek and everything. So Well, that's that's his his bread and defining <laughs> role, isn't it, really? Um but that's it, you know, he's a guy off Star Trek. He, he's not a huge star, but yeah, a great know, Danny Trejo. He, he, that's it. These are these are all people at a certain level. But then, I don't know. I don't know. Steve Buscemi doesn't do any old shit unless Adam Sandler's involved. <laughs> um, well, this yeah. I mean, this was before it's before Armageddon, which I think made Steve Buscemi a bit more of a kind of well-known yeah. name. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's post Reservoir Dogs, which was. His mm. big breakthrough, really, from doing little character parts. We have just listed about nine or ten men there without a single woman. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I suppose arguably the film, by, by its very nature, being, you know, dealing with a, a plane full of dangerous inmates from a male prison. Yeah. Um, I suppose there aren't many places to put interesting female characters in there. And, you know, there there are a couple of female characters that are given as much time of day as um yeah literally Steve a Buscemi, there's two, there's two. but they just aren't as um interesting the characters i suppose they, yeah. they feel much more like is... one of them feels like they've tried and just failed i suppose to make her compelling and interesting and the other one just feels like a prop uh, well, yeah, the, the the female guard who is on the plane, uh, who gets involved in everything, she, yeah, that feels like I don't know. You, you you don't want necessarily huge personality in every ca- character though, because you know it becomes swamped. Mm. Um, I think she does yeah. a perfectly good job. She she never sort of seems yeah, like yeah, a that's... damsel in distress, which I think is good. She kind of holds her yeah. own. She yeah. She and and. Nicholas Cage's character kind of managed to bond a little bit, even though they're from mm. different sides of the track, so to speak, at the beginning. She seems like a good person, so you're kind of on on board yeah. with her, whereas some of the other guards seem like dickheads. You know, all that sort of stuff. And then the wife, um, who kind of gets left at home, I think she does uh, a perfectly good job for that role. Monica Potter, who, um, you know, around this time was yeah. popping up in a few things. I had to make sure it wasn't Amy Smart, <laughs> and it wasn't. But I think I think she does a, a a lovely job with what is asked of her. You know, she she yeah, creates that yeah, emotional draw. We believe that he's in love with her and he wants to get back to his family yeah, and all that's that. True. I put a pin in that because I want to come back to it. But I I've just got to run off to the oven to put some <laughs> sauce over my dinner. This is part of a new a new segment that we're introducing on the show this week. Dinner in a movie. Um. But yeah, just give me five minutes. I am taking advantage of this little interlude to prod you once again to please go to nextgreatpodcast.com and vote for Development Hell to be picked up to series. If you haven't already, like, please just do it, like, now. What's what's a little favour among friends? Please. Thank you. Love you guys. Edit point. <laughs> yeah, one thing that really struck me is how I, I I know father daughter kind of dynamics are ten a penny in action movies like this, mm. but the fact that at the end Nicolas Cage doesn't get the girl he kind of gets to meet his daughter felt 
remarkably fresh to me. I, I don't know what it was about it, but it just felt like, oh, that's a really nice kind of dynamic, a kind of art. I don't know, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's just a, slight, a nice set a of goals for this character, and it. It's obviously, like I say, very workmanlike in that it sets him up as a good guy that you care about. He's he's focused on goals that are very wholesome. But it worked for me. I, I really like the fact that he is essentially driven throughout this film by just wanting to see his daughter. Mm. And and for anyone who hasn't seen the film, it is you know a daughter that he has never met before because he's been in prison yeah. and she was born after he went in. So, I mean, that's that's a really nice setup, I think. And I do like, just to jump right to the end there, just while we're talking about it, when, when we have the moment right at the end, spoiler alert, where he finally gets to be with his, his wife and, and daughter, it, it, I think it's played really nicely. Like, he just, he's useless. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't yeah. know what to say. He doesn't know how to express his emotions. She's scared of him because he's got a Bruce Willis vest on and he's scary bleeding man and he's got blood mullet. on his face. Yeah, yeah so... I think it's really nice that she doesn't just run up and hug him and all that. They have a, they they still get the moment, but it, it feels quite yeah genuine in some way. Uh, it, it was nice. I didn't overplay it. It was a touching moment that he earned, you know, throughout the film. Yeah, I I completely agree that that final moment is what made me really think about it and go, oh yeah, that's actually been a really nice, effective uh, aspect to this film throughout. Mm. It does feel comedic at times, how much they set him up as as that being his set of goals. Uh, and I, I never quite knew to what extent, you know, that there's a scene earlier on where John Malkovich, the, uh, the primary villain of the film, essentially does your classic hostage thing where they like hold a gun to someone's head, but it's with the stuffed toy rabbit. <laughs> that Nicolas Cage has bought to give to his daughter when he first meets her. <laughs> and it's it's handled with as much gravitas as if it was a person. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can only assume that was being done as a bit of a joke. I don't know. It, well, it was... are you referring to when he says, put the bunny back in the box? Because <laughs> mm. that's just, that's actually a different scene. You've I think you've conflated two things there. It's, it's the scene where he's holding the bunny out of the aeroplane hangar and holding a gun to it or something. Yeah, well, that happens right the uh, just as the helicopter turns up. But early than that, he he goes down and finds the character of Billy Bedlam, and he's got the rabbit, and he's kind of discovered who he is, and he's he's got put the bunny back in the box like that oh, in a yes, kind of very yeah, yeah, yeah. very sort of serious way. Yeah, and you're right. I think that's a good point overall. This film has a real sense of humor. Uh, definitely, mm. there's some distinctly comic elements. But also, it, it it felt like on paper, it maybe didn't have a sense of humor. But then they cast John Malkovich. <laughs> well, that's it. I think what we're talking about that. I think certain personality types have, have been brought out. But I think there is humor in it. There's a lot of things that yeah. play quite sometimes quite dark humor. There's some very blatant. 90s action movie Hollywood gags in there. There's a scene where they they throw a dead body out of the aeroplane and Nicolas yes. Cage writes a message to John Cusack to kind of inform him what's going on on the plane, on the body, knowing that people will see it on this guy's clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, that's kind of darkly comedic in of itself, but then the film has to have a scene of a, an old couple, like, driving and bickering in the, in the street uh and you you know you know full well that the 
bodies about to come yeah. slamming down. And it is a it's a particular type of comedy where it's a throwaway thing in an action film that it's not trying to be a comedy. Uh, but yeah, there's a definite sense of humor. I think that does go through into the general plot. There is just this sense of like. Let's not take anything too seriously, shall we? This is all a bit silly, and that's yeah. okay. And I think it sets that tone just right. If the film was deadly po-faced, it, it wouldn't work at all. Uh, so no, I agree. I, I think the sense of humour is a, a huge part mm. as to why this is a uh, renowned film. <laughs> yeah, People like this but film. Yeah, it I, is, I, it's it... got a real reputation. Yeah. yeah, definitely, yeah. But it is very much people like it, even though it's stupid, I suppose. Can I uh, jump us back? We were sort of like, let's deal with the plot a little bit. Because at yeah. the beginning here, we set up, okay, uh, Cameron Poe, Nicholas Cage's character, he's done his time, he's going out on parole, so they're going to shift him back to Alabama or whatever, so he's hitching a ride on this plane. But this plane just happens to be transporting the worst scum of the universe to a new maximum security prison. So then we have something I think you would have really liked, Sol, a massive exposition dump where we basically just do a roll call of the main villains <laughs> and the main bad guys. Well, this is this is what I mean that it it really feels like a, a montage up front that's very difficult to really get into. Yeah, this is still very much in the. I I made a note. It's it was twenty five minutes in. That's when everyone was on the plane and we mm. set off, and it's like okay, we're mm. ready. But yeah, it's twenty five minutes of just plot set up really. It all pays off. Yeah, so I I, I mean I I didn't really like it because it just felt like I say, difficult to immerse myself in. It's it's doing a job and it does it well enough. Um, I've got to go take my food out of the oven now. The, the last five minutes <laughs> okay. have taken place. So, yeah. <laughs> hey, it's me again, taking the opportunity of these little breaks built into this episode. This wasn't planned this way, but, you know, serendipity in it. So I've tried begging you if you still haven't if you still haven't taken the 20 seconds out of your day to to do me a solid you can you can do it on your phone or or on your computer basically wherever you're listening to this podcast can probably access nextgreatpodcast.com and vote for development hell the deadline for voting by the way is the 8th of December so you have to get it in before then and I will say I think the only thing stopping people from voting more than once is cookies there are other shows that I'm competing against from people who have more of an overt following. So, you know, I, I'm really counting on you guys to come through and, and vote for me. And, you know, I'll make a great show that you'll enjoy, hopefully. This is my pledge to you Bond fans. I will cover James Bond projects that never got made. I believe there's one called Warhead 4000 or something like that. And I will have Calvin Dyson on to discuss. I've already spoken to him about the possibility of appearing on the show and he's well up for it. So if you ever want to hear an in-depth discussion about James Bond things, you know, I'm pandering to our audience, basically. So, you know, pander to me. Thanks. All right, back to Con Air. Okay. Right. Food, food is out of the oven. <laughs> so we... And cooling. So now, now we're going to do a fun game where... I have to try and eat as much of the dinner while we're recording as possible without giving away what it is that I'm eating. And then you can guess what it is at the end. Right. <laughs> so we we now establish uh the, the, the bad guys, like the um 
the 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 criminals basically were going to take over this plane. Yes, we we got John Malkovich yeah. as your kind of classic, just insane genius sort of, um, yeah, in, in insane criminal, I guess. The yeah. virus, Cyrus the virus. Uh, we have that's a good name. Ving Rhames as a sort of Black Panther terrorist person. Did, did you did you like at the end when uh, when he's about to kill that guy? And he, he goes, Sai. Anara. <laughs> As if to like plead with him. And then <laughs> and then he just yeah, goes, Anara. Really well that was the, <laughs> and sets him on fire. <sighs> yeah. Um, so yeah, we got uh, Ving Rhames uh, uh, as, a, as a Black Panther terrorist. And uh, a guy who I don't know and never seen anything else called Billy Bedlam. Uh, that's the character's name. And he's sort of along for the ride. He never quite fleshes out. And then they... They use him for a bit of body count, but uh, one of the more yeah. interesting characters is played by Dave Chappelle. Now he's there. Um, I think he's probably the one designed to be the comic relief element, and I think he fits that role perfectly. Uh, uh, from what I understand, Dave Chappelle improvised most of the lines. I think that comes across. It's his personality comes through it very mm. strongly, um, and I think. When he uh, disappears, because he dies about halfway through the film, he's suddenly big miss. I, I really missed him once he was gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I, I, I'm i trying to think, really. I, I don't think I really noticed <laughs> much of an absence of anything. But I suppose the last half of this film descends into just things yeah, it definitely goes and Nicolas Cage jumping from one shot into another. and Didn't feel like there was much opportunity for a character like that to... Perhaps not, yeah. Twip. Perhaps not, but I think he did did his job very well. I enjoy every bit he's in. This maximum security; these are the worst criminals ever. The security is basically handcuffs that can be easily picked and doors that can be opened with a door handle. Why <laughs> just by opening? Them. Like they they get out pretty easily. It's like it feels like there should be some kind of deeper conspiracy at work. I I think it works quite well. I, mm. I know, I know what you mean. It, even the pilot is just yeah, readily accessible. Yeah, it's pre nine eleven, though. I suppose there's quite a lot in this film. You know, as much as we're saying this is a very by the numbers kind of thing, there's some really neat ideas, some really mm. nice little twists on normal things. Like, so for example, the Dave Chappelle character, he's smuggled something on board in his throat. Like he's swallowed something. He's got a bit of dental floss attached to a tooth or something, and he pulls it out. He sort of regurgitates it, and it's a little flask of something flammable in a match, and he uses that to cause a fire, which causes a distraction. Lovely little neat thing. That's totally believable. It feels like that's probably prison, like a prison thing that people have done, and it just allows enough of a distraction. But in, in terms of what I'm talking about, those kind of nice ideas, like, for example, when Poe writes a message on this corpse and then throws it off the plane so that he knows it'll get back to this guy, I think that's yeah. a really cool idea. That's a really nice thing. I've never seen that in anything else, I don't think. I mean, John McClane writes a taunting message on the body of a dead terrorist. Mm. And, he, and he uses another terrorist to throw out onto a car to, to, to get yeah. attention. Yeah. A lot of this stuff reminded me of Die Hard. It's that, it's that kind of spirit, mm. you know, action, bit of comedy, not taking itself too seriously. Uh, I would say this takes itself less seriously than Die Hard. Um, but perhaps yeah. Die Hard 3, maybe. But it's that it's that era. I think it, it definitely falls into that whole category. So yeah, they they take over the plane. 
fairly easily, but it feels okay. Nicolas Cage is like, oh, Christ, I just wanted to get home. What am I stuck in now? And then yeah. the sort of other side of the story is we've got John Cusack and Colin Meany butting heads, um, trying to organise everything on the ground, and then ultimately butting heads, trying to sort out the problems. So one of the other things that happens is Colin Meany puts one of his agents undercover on the plane because he's going to try and get some information. Now, this guy's a DE agent or, or whatever he is. Yeah. He doesn't work well under pressure, does he? <laughs> <laughs> Rather than sort of waiting it out and seeing the best situ- best opportunity to, to do something, just pulls his gun out, reveals to everyone who he is, surrounded in a locked tube by people who want to kill him. I don't know what his plan was. I don't know what, what, what he is intending to do. This this script, it does have one credited writer, but it feels like a script that's been through seven or eight pairs of hands. And so it's probably just got these little extra elements, these tail ends of things that perhaps were bigger at one point. That writer is um, the guy who also wrote Gone in 60 Seconds, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Scott Rosenberg. I mean, if you look at his credits, he's, he's a workman. He's a, he's a Hollywood writer you know he's not writing from the heart here he's just producing scripts well yeah he also wrote venom oh did he and jumanji welcome to the jungle so <laughs> well, there you go you know he'll write anything <laughs> the american remake of life on mars he's the uh creator of that american remake of uh, an english show like a jeff davis situation <laughs> but yeah i think he's you know that's it he's just churning scripts out this is one of his earlier things that's fair enough it feels like that but yeah, it also feels like there's been a few other people chipping in on this. Apparently, I did read something about it. They were still writing, you know, on on the shoot. Really? It's, yeah. I mean, it doesn't feel like one of those, so... Not particularly, but it is one of those things where there's a few, like we say, a few elements that just kind of go, okay, that doesn't feel just... It doesn't feel quite thought out enough. So maybe that's been sort of chucked together at the last minute and all that sort of thing. But yeah, apparently they were sort of writing on the fly. That The writer, in fact, he makes a, a cameo in the film, right later in the film. So he's obviously on set <laughs> every day, just waiting uh, to write things. Uh, in terms of plot, where are we now? They're, they're basically just fanning around on the plane for quite a while. And they, they, they land... And have a bit of a conflict on on the ground. The refueling. They pick up more prisoners, uh, crucially, uh, because that's all part of the plan, including our uh, South American drug lord. And so I like that. I think throwing in some new characters halfway through is quite nice. We get Steve Buscemi yeah. who again seems to be put there for comic <laughs> relief. Like he seems to be. He was a weird. <laughs> A weird element in this film, to be honest. Um, yeah, so he plays a kind of Hannibal Lecter style, <laughs> obviously, uh, you know, manacled up to the eyeballs. Uh, he must be a complete insane psychopath. So obviously they let him out, and he's just a bit weird. He doesn't speak much, and then he's a bit kooky. Goes and has a chat with a little girl for a bit, and they go to great lengths to show us that he didn't murder her and wear as a hat. There's a chat, he, he has a sequence where he talks with someone about how he's insane, and, and they're like, they say you're insane, and then he's like, I'm insane. People spend every day of their life going to an office and... Working in an office for 50 years, and then they just discard you without a thought. And all I do is kill a few people, and I'm insane! <laughs> it was a very weird scene. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. It was, well, to be fair, Nicolas Cage's character is because, yeah, you're the insane one. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, if you kill people, you're insane. That's, again, that one that feels more self-consciously comedic character. And uh, I think it works. It sort of gets away with it. He has his little uh, yeah. button on the end of the film as well. He's just wandered into a casino and he's playing craps. Uh, so he's the one that got away. The implication of that is obviously he will murder lots of people, but, you know, it's still funny. In the context of this film. (laughs) Murder's funny when it isn't real. (laughs) Death is the ultimate punchline. Is that right? So, yeah, there's a lot of... This midsection, it it doesn't feel saggy. It actually whips along and and it's all entertaining. But in terms of plot, it's just sort of trundling along. So the whole film zips along, honestly. It's very... um... And there's a lot in it. It's under two hours but a lot happens and and like you say Mm. it kind of packs a lot in right at the beginning. We have a big finish and then a uh, an extra action scene on the top of that, um, all that stuff. But yeah, at this point, basically they they land again and we we it gets to a point where we're gonna have to uh, have a confrontation between everyone. Um, what 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 accent was Cole Meany doing? I don't know. It's just his voice. Isn't it? It's sort of like a bit of Irish, but he's doing American. <laughs> Initially, I thought, oh, he's doing an American accent, but not a very good one. But then as it went on, I was like, actually, I think that's just his voice. Yeah, he always sounds the same. I don't know if there's any great... Is he Northern Irish or Irish or something? Or is he... I mean, I, I assumed he's got some Irish. He's Irish, yeah. Uh, Dublin. Says he was born in Dublin. So, it's yeah. weird, isn't it, how Irish accents can go very weird as uh, our continued discussion of Pierce Brosnan has... Uh, <laughs> you add a little bit of American twang in there and the whole thing just goes haywire. <laughs> yeah, he's originally Irish, but he's certainly been in America since... At least the 80s. Yeah. Working yeah. on TV and stuff, so... Obviously, it's a Jerry Bruckheimer production, but it was just feeling like... This just Michael feels Bay. like a Michael Bay film. Yeah, <laughs> no, <that>. completely. <laughs> but with more of a knowing sense of humour. I've never been quite convinced that Michael Bay understands the humour in the films he makes. Yeah. <laughs> which is sort of the dichotomy of it, how serious he's taking it. But yeah, I mean, he'd just done The Rock, of course. He did Bad Boys and then The Rock. That was his two first films, uh, Jerry Bruckheimer. Uh, obviously, The Rock was Nicolas Cage's previous film as well, which I think was shot pretty much, you know, all sort of the same time. So obviously, Michael Bay couldn't do this one. But this film feels like a Michael Bay film. Completely, uh, yeah. And part of that is John Cusack, for no real... Well, I mean, a bit more justified than most Michael Bay films. He gets in a sports car and, and, and drives <laughs> down <laughs> Which, you know, he's in a hurry, I guess. That's about it. Uh, they do they do, they do, do try and justify it. Yeah. A character says something like, I need to get to Thingy, and they're like, it'd be faster to drive or something. Yeah, yeah, he says he got a car, you can drive it. Um, and then he steals Colmini's car. Uh, but also we've set that guy up that he would have a flashy midlife crisis car. So that kind of makes sense. And then it pays off later when it gets accidentally snagged up on the plane and is just flying <laughs> behind the plane, which I thought was a beautiful moment. Um, like the car, you know, it, it felt like a really good practical effect with a car just f- flanging around on a rope behind a plane. It gives us a bit of action and it gives us a payoff with Colmini, just a little comedy bit. It's it all wraps up nicely. I think that's all that all works quite seamlessly, really. And it it, it felt like it felt very Bond, you know, a car yeah. on a rope after out of a plane. It's of its period, I think. Well, this director is the guy who directed 
the first Tomb Raider movie. Mm-hmm, that's right, after this. Yeah, which we've also covered on this podcast. And I, I believe I said um, that those Tomb Raider films were like the kind of base level I expect from a, a James Bond movie that yeah. they fail to achieve. And I'd say it's kind of true here. This is kind of... This film is kind of what I expected good James Bond movies to be like before watching them. And right, yeah. They're yeah. actually not good. Especially of this era. Like, this should be, like, what Brosnan Bond is, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, of the 90s, yeah. The Brosnan stuff, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Maybe the uh, Dalton ones as well. That kind of period, 80s and 90s. Yeah, good, solid, yeah. practical effects, big budget stuff. A lot of model work in this, apparently. I couldn't tell you what, because uh, it's done oh, very right. well. Really good stuff. Uh, we, we talked about, we've talked about this before, like, say, Godzilla, Independence Day, and, and stuff like that. It's sort of the pinnacle of practical effects. It was as good as it got before CGI meant that they stopped really progressing with it. Yeah. So it's really nice stuff. So get back to the plot. Um, they they kind of they're just sort of fannying about a lot, and they, there's a bit <laughs> of yeah, there's this bit of interpersonal conflict. Oh, a oh, one big kind of plot line that's um, keeping. Cameron Poe, Nicolas Cage's character, busy is he's trying to help his friend get an insulin shot, uh, and so he's kind of dealing with all that all the way through. Which it, it, it's it's okay. It kind of just gives him the motivation to stay there, you know, never leave a man behind, kind of thing. It's his friend. Yeah, it's nice. It, it gives us his drive. It makes us believe. It's just believable enough that, especially with his army training, like you don't leave a man behind kind of idea. I think they probably do actually in the army, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> Because we've set so much up in terms of, well, he's going back to his family, he's going back to his daughter. Just get off the plane. Like, you had the chance, just get off the plane. But we believe it of this, you know, this quite simple character. He's working on very basic emotional levels. This friend good, family good, Malkovich bad kind of (laughs) idea. But speaking of that, Malkovich bad, he's perhaps too charismatic. Him and Ving Rhames are a bit too likeable. As kind of yeah, as kind of yeah, villains, yeah. obviously they're bad people. They kill people, but we we like them. Or I, well, I like them as characters. You know, they're very uh, yeah charismatic. I guess. Yeah, I, I would argue that John Malkovich is the best character in the film. <laughs> the most, the morally robust character. He at least believes in what he's doing. I don't think I've seen a performance from him anywhere else that quite explains why he has the career that he has more than this one, if that makes sense. This is peak Malkovich for me. Like, when we were talking mm. about Johnny English, whenever I see, you know, John Malkovich being John Malkovich, apart from him being John Malkovich, I this is what I'm comparing it to. This is my kind of idea of peak Malkovich. Uh, so mm. This is my reference point. Well, I, I think I kind of get that now that I've seen this. Because... I mean, he's great. He's 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 just it's a classic over the top chewing the scenery performance, but mm. you know a really good job of it. But c- that can be done really badly, can't it? You know, that's... yeah, exactly. He's doing it and seemingly quite effortlessly, and he's got a kind of funny voice just to you know wash <laughs> it all down. He kind of over pronounces every line. Everything's slow and deliberate. It, it's nice. It's. It's a good mm. little character thing he's doing. I like the bit where he was doing Nicolas Cage's daughter's voice to read that uh, <laughs> letter out. My daddy is coming home on July 14th. My birthday is July 14th. I'm going to see my daddy for the first time ever on July 14th. Make a move and the bunny gets it. 
In terms of plot, once they get stuck, uh, some some sort of police force, military, or whatever the hell they are, they come in. They set a trap um, with some propane and propane accessories and, and trap them. <laughs> All the way through... Nicholas Cage's character, he, he'll he'll stop someone, but he's not just brutally murdering people. Like, even when he kills Billy Bedlam, it's sort of by accident. They get into a fight and he gets impaled on something in a classic Hollywood hero way. Never kind of aggressively killing someone. And then even after he's done that, he yeah. feels, obviously feels bad about the fact that he's actually killed someone. They really hammer home. It's, it's very just the classic archetype, you know, the, the, the hero. But again, it, they get it away with it. it, it it's just such a basic character but it works and i think having someone like nicholas cage in that character and like i say this is a very subdued performance but that brings enough life to it like that could be a very boring character or or very overplayed it's such a schmaltzy kind of character it's like it can be done badly it's what I imagine. I mean, I, I I haven't seen many films of this ilk, to be perfectly honest. Your brother's a big fan of these things, and he'll often <laughs> reference films I've never heard of when he's on this podcast. Nicolas Cage in this film, it's kind of what I imagine the likes of your Jean-Claude Van Damme, your Steven Seagal, all these movies that I've never really explored. I kind of imagine all those films having protagonists like this, but badly, you know? Like, no... <laughs> no charisma to take you through it and and i think nicolas cage as much as he's become something of a joke he he does have that charm in a good film <laughs> like not just a dreadful piece of shit yeah. When he's actually mentally checked in to what he's doing which he clearly is here this was back when he was still trying trying with everything he made i think <laughs> yeah yeah he just he, he brings something to it makes it work and and it, like you say it's weird because it is very subdued but that's a good thing here because nicholas cage if he went more cagey with it then it would just be john malkovich again <laughs> yeah yeah exactly you know in a in a film full of big characters you, you don't want to over salt it there is one real cage moment uh right near the beginning where he's with McKelty Williamson in prison and he's like, he's he knows he's getting out and he suddenly goes, ah! I'm getting out! <laughs> yeah, that's the great thing with Cage is even in... He can pop it out. doesn't matter what film you're watching, there's always one moment that just makes you think, oh yeah, there, there he is. <laughs> there he is. Like National Treasure or National Treasure 2, whichever one it is, he's, you know, very mundane run-of-the-mill performance, but then there's a scene in the middle where he has to, like, create a distraction. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just loses the plot starts screaming in the street and you're like oh great that, that's cage we we've been building up here and there's been, been some really good action stuff so like that we've had the first really big action thing when they again they, they were on the the airstrip and the the police come in and there's a big fire etc then we're up in the plane again so our big big sort of finale is are they going to shoot the plane down? They should shoot the plane down. Colin Meany wants to shoot it down. And then John, um, Nicolas Cage manages to basically get control of the plane and they're going to ditch it. But they can't reach Las Vegas airport. So the the decision is just land it on the strip, Las Vegas strip. Just land it there. That'll be fine. Now, definitely the better option would have been to shoot it down. Just just to be clear, Colin Meany was correct. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah this is really where we completely depart from any sense of reality they they crash land this plane on the strip because you know it's a big road isn't it it's basically a runway 
the fact that it's surrounded by buildings and has cars on it and people not really important i mean they could have at least like had a five minutes notice we've got the police have closed the road there's no cars on it you know something like that yeah but yeah and obviously no one is hurt (laughs) no people on the ground are even remotely injured despite the carnage that ensues Mm. it's just a that that's definitely the point where it goes just a bit too hollywood reality for my taste it's just just oversteps the line Mm. Uh, but as an action piece it's fine they they found out that this hotel uh, in vegas was going to be demolished so they were like "Ooh, can we demolish it with a plane I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so it is actually a genuine kind of building, or at least the front end of a building, they explode. It's quite cool. It's all very big and impressive. And that's the end of the film, surely, right? Yeah. No. What? No. Um, Cyrus, Ving Rhames, and the guy who was flying the plane, they've got away. They've snuck out and they've stolen a fire truck. And Shit. I, I, right. Just give me a sec. I need to... I need to um... Go and watch the rest of the film. Oh, you did, did you turn over? You just thought, oh, that's definitely the end. I just immediately, I assumed it was over. The emotional denouement. I thought, that's it, it's done. <laughs> it's definitely over. Do you know, do you know, Alan? I remember when Let the Right One In came out. Yeah. And I rented it out. And then while I had the disc rented out, postal postal rentals were normal back then. <laughs> um, I, I lent it to Calvin, who I was living with at uni at the time. Right. And uh, he went away and watched it and then came back and we were talking about it. And then basically it turned out that he, he, he did exactly that. He like hadn't, there's like a shot towards the end of snow in the sky. And he just saw that and assumed it was the end of the film. <laughs> and just like turned the film off. And we had to go back into his room, turn it back on, and and there was a whole, you know, two or three other scenes at the end. And he was like, no, it's a good, good, swift hour, ten minute film. It was nice. Yeah, and I I just thought it was very, very odd mentality you'd have to have to not at least wait for the written and directed by credit to come up. (laughs) He must have had his finger on the button of the remote ready to stop it. It's like, God, I'm so ready for this to be over. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we, we do have another action scene, and, and straight out of the Michael Bay, Jerry Bruckheimer playbook, they get on a couple of motorbikes uh, and, and chase them. It is just an ancillary action scene, but I guess that's standard procedure. You've had your big major thing, and then you just need a, something a little bit more personal to kill the villain off. But again, not quite directly just stabbing him in the face or anything like that. So all the bad guys get deaded. I guess all the other ones got rounded up apart from Steve Buscemi. Basically the whole thing, that's your plot. Uh, it's very silly, as we've said, but it, it just strikes that right balance, I think. It, it finds the, the, the measure of silliness and, and actual something you can get hold of, the plot. Yeah, I don't know what exactly I was expecting from this film going in. Yeah, I've heard people go on and on about Con Air before, and I, I guess when I was younger I was always a bit like, eh, sounds a bit crap. <laughs> as I've got more into film and had a better grasp on perhaps what it might be. I've warmed to the idea that it would probably be a decent film. I wasn't expecting it to be quite so cut from the same cloth as The Rock as it is. Yeah. I don't know why. I guess I didn't know it was a Bruckheimer production, perhaps. Um, But yeah, I mean, it is just really solidly entertaining, I'd say. I've not got a massive deal to say about it. (laughs) It's just, I I watched it, it, it zipped along. It was enjoyable. Uh, great cast, decent action, 
very silly. It does feel a bit like lightning in a in a bottle kind of thing where you don't feel like this was a really great deliberate attempt to make this. It was just like the ingredients <laughs> came together in just the right way. Because yeah. Simon West was a first-time director, a well, feature film director. He's, right. I think he was most known at that point for directing the uh, Never Gonna Give You Up video, <laughs> Rick Astley. <laughs> that was one of his things. Uh, he was a music video director. So I'm not quite sure. What a legacy. What, yeah, exactly. Not quite sure. He must have done music videos and uh, adverts and stuff like that, I'm sure. That got yeah, him noticed. Yeah. Same as Michael Bay. Uh, but he has not gone on to have the career of Michael Bay. I guess uh, that's what Tomb Raider will do to you, I suppose. Yeah, he didn't even come back for Tomb Raider 2. Mm. He did uh, He did produce that animated Night of the Living Dead thing, though. Oh, Jesus Christ, really? Yeah, we've talked about that in our episode. Didn't we? Oh, Matt. Yeah, I didn't realise that was this guy. Yeah, Fuck me, too. that was... I mean... <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, yeah, one thing I will say that struck me is the music was actually surprisingly full of personality. For a film like this, you kind of expect very generic action movie music. It was very on the nose. It was like very... Like, every moment was punctuated, I guess. Mm. But in this kind of film, that worked. I think I liked it, because it, it it gave the film a lot of personality. It, it, none of it's music that I want to go back and listen to outside of the film. Yeah, it, 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 it was quite a, a unique <laughs> score for a film, I think. <laughs> what about that actual, uh, the kind of love song that's over whenever he's with his wife? How do I be, be? That one. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Did you like that mawkish nonsense? <laughs> um, that wasn't written for this film, was it? Wasn't that just a... It was. It was nominated for was Best it really? Song. Yeah, Oscar, the Best Song. Oh, wow. I mean... That explains why they play it five times. <laughs> um, that's very nineties. That song, though, that's very sort of. It's an incredibly nineties song. I, I think it's a pretty solid song for that sort of pop song kind of thing. You know, you can do a lot worse than that. Yeah. Do you say that won the Oscar? No, it was nominated. Nominated. What won then? Titanic. That means Con Air is an Oscar-nominated film. Yeah, it also got nominated for sound editing, I think. But it was the Titanic year, but not so special that effects. Won everything. No, I'm looking this up. <laughs> uh, let's see what else was up Oh, and uh, Men in Black Came out that year So why wasn't that song nominated? <laughs> uh, let's see Original song Oh, what a load of shit <laughs> uh, My Heart Will Go On from Titanic Journey to the Past from Anastasia I don't know that one I uh, I watched Anastasia earlier this year The songs are terrible <laughs> Goodwill Hunting song Miss Misery I I don't know what that is. Uh, I don't remember any songs in that film, so it can't have been very familiar. How Do I Live and Go the Distance from Hercules, which is (laughs) a solid song, but probably the worst song in that film. There's much (laughs) better songs in that film. Okay. I'm going to look up what was uh, up for sound design as well. LA Confidential. Really? That's odd. Okay. Contact. That kind of makes sense, I guess. Titanic, of course, which won it. Conair... Air Force One, mm. another film I have never seen. This solid film, yeah. Is that Harrison Ford? Yeah, and Gary Oldman. Is that is that basically Con Air with Harrison Ford instead of Nicolas Cage? Because that's kind of what it no, looks like. No, 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 no. It's it's very different film. It's much more serious. 
Mm. And Harrison Ford is the president. Oh. He's on Air Force oh. One. You know, he's on the president's plane. And these I terrorists know about manage to this. get on. Yes, yes, yes. And then he, yes. he hides in the vents and attacks them. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It is actually a solid film. I think I, I think I conflated both films in my mind when people have told me about them in the past. <laughs> Very different tones, I think. Shall we have ourselves a little rating? I guess so, yeah. Yeah, as I say, I watched this for the first time earlier today. Didn't really know what to expect, but it kind of was what I expected, if that makes sense. I don't think that makes any sense. Um, It it was just a very straightforward, enjoyable bit of action nonsense, really. So I give it a 7 out of 10. Didn't blow me away or anything, but... Mm -hmm. I think that's very fair. I think I basically agree, except that... It just pushes my buttons a little bit. There's definitely a nostalgia element there. And I think it's just a really nicely balanced out film mm. uh, in, a, in a genre that can be done quite poorly. So uh, I just just nudged it up. I gave it an eight. Yeah. And a very comfortable eight. I'm happy with that. Would you like to know where it sits in my Nicolas Cage films list? Yes. I also want to know how you've rated the cageness of the performance, <laughs> of course. That's another thing. Uh, if, if anyone wants to know more about this, we have talked about Nicolas Cage in detail on our Diminisodes, which are uh, little mini kind of episodes that we do on our Patreon feed. One dollar a month if you want to get up on, on that. Help support the show. Uh, and we do, yeah, we do pretty regular stuff. Usually reviews of new releases that will come out. But obviously this year it's been slim pickings. So we've been doing other stuff. One of which, a little series we've been doing is Sol's Lists. Sol here has um, a weird fetish for making lists of films. <laughs> in, in really unnecessary detail and so we, we did one all about all the Nicholas Cage films he's seen so uh, go and check that out patreon.com forward slash dim returns but yeah so one of the things you keep record of Sol is how much you like the cage within the film regardless of the quality of the film yeah okay Conair Conair you will be pleased to know makes the top 10 Ooh. Nicholas Cage films that I've seen <laughs> Out good, of good. 61 films out of his career, I think I've That's got another solid. 34 to see, so this is two-thirds of his filmography. My problem is Nicolas Cage makes films quicker than I can watch them now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was uh, <laughs> that was the case for me for a while. <laughs> and like I say, I've been going into Cage overtime recently, trying to catch up. Basically, Raising Arizona has been pushed out of the top ten. Conair is in at number eight, uh, which puts it just ahead of Face Off, which <laughs> will probably upset you somehow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I put it just behind the 2009 Bad Lieutenant. Oh right, yeah, I haven't seen that yet. Oh uh, really? Yeah, I want. Uh, yeah, I know it's complete insanity. Isn't it? <laughs> but so on on the Cage O meter, um, I'm guessing this is going to be pretty low because he's not very Cage tastic, is he? Yeah, I mean, so I gave the film a 7. I gave Cage himself a uh, 6.5 out of 10, so basically a 7 as well. Yeah, You know, he's, he's, like you say, very subdued, but there's definitely a little sparkle of something there that he's bringing to it, like we spoke about. Unremarkable Cage performance, really. But... <laughs> well, that's it, I think, for this week. Uh, happy Cage. And uh, next week, Sol, uh, it's going to be December. So I'm sure we're going to start ramping up for Christmas, aren't we? Um, is that is that the next episode after this? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Just in case any of it actually made the edit. Alan, do you, do you want to guess what my dinner was this recording? <laughs> uh, well, you ate it very quietly. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I've eaten about half of it, just enough to stop me from keeling over, and I'll, I'll have the rest after we finish. Uh, Hunter's chicken? Oh, you're very close. <laughs> uh, I've been nibbling on some chicken wings. Ooh. Spicy chicken wings. Mm-hmm. I've eaten about three or four of them there, looking down at the plate. <laughs> there you go. Conair, chicken wings. Come back next week for a film. Yes. And we should have burgers what, what, next week. That would be appropriate for that film. I was going to say what we're going to pair pair it with McDougal's. A McDougal, a couple of McDougal's. I think we should start doing this. We should for all the people. Obviously, a lot of people hate listening to people eat, but <laughs> yeah, I reckon there's probably a, a sub fraction, like a sub faction of people who get off on it, <laughs> and, and we should just appeal to that niche. <laughs> Just ASMR eating with chicken wings. People who want to hear comedic film discussion with like eating noises, lip smacking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey guys, thanks for listening. I really am sorry to be going on and on and on about it, but I'm I'm just so excited to have this show competing at nextgreatpodcast.com. For iHeartRadio, I'm up against some pretty strong competition, but you know, we I, I've made a really cool show, I think, about Simpsons movies, and you can go and hear me chatting to some big-name guests. Tell you what, I, I recorded for much, much longer than I used in that pilot, so I have all these cool interview clips lying around with me and Bill Oakley, and chatting about steamed hams and what have you, and you know, I'll probably find a use for the outtakes on Diminishing Returns at some point. So if you want to contextualise all that before you hear it on this show, head over there, nextgreatpodcast.com, and I will love you forever for voting for Development Hell. And listen if you want, you know, enjoy it. Oh, and if you if you actually want to listen to it in another way, um, remember there is a Spotify playlist, which you can find linked on our social media accounts, or you can just search Spotify for the Diminishing Returns mixtape. The pilot in question is on there, along with some songs and so on. I believe this episode will be going out to How Do I Live from Conair. Logical, innit? Hearing me sing it earlier has presumably got that catchy little number stuck in your head, so you can get it out of your head by listening to it straight after this if you listen to the show on Spotify, the Diminishing Returns mixtape, featuring episodes from all sorts of other shows that Alan and myself have appeared on, in this case, my pilot for Development Hell for iHeartRadio, head to nextgreatpodcast.com to vote for it to go to series. It'll mean the world to me, and it'll mean the world to Diminishing Returns. Alright, thanks for listening, and come back next week. We're doing a Pixar movie, we threw it out to Patreon to select which one we would do, out of all the Pixar movies we have not covered yet. There was a tough battle between Wall-E and Monsters, Inc., but ultimately Monsters, Inc. won, so that's next week. I, I know Alan and I were talking about McDougal's there. That's because we were planning to do Coming to America, because we thought that film was going to be coming out in December. As was widely reported, it now turns out that it's coming out in March 2021, so our recorded episode has been delayed. You can probably find it weeks, if not months, ahead of that release on Patreon once we get around to putting it up early, once we've edited it. As we have done with our upcoming Kingsman 2 episode, which is on there now ahead of a planned normal release in uh, February for The Kingsman, and our The Purge episode, which has been up there for a while now, ahead of the release of the new Purge movie. 
which is in what, May 2021, something like that? Mid-2021. And you know, all sorts of diminisodes and bonus episodes and other stuff. So enjoy. See you next week. Bye.